Hello, everyone. Welcome to the AMT Tech Trends Podcast, where we discuss the latest manufacturing and technology research and news. Today's episode is sponsored by AM Radio. I am the Director of Technology, Benjamin Moses, and I'm here with... Stephen Lamarca, Technology Analyst. Steve, how are you doing? Doing well. Yeah? I'm, I'm excited to be here for another podcast. It's our first day officially back in the office. <laughs> Correct. We've been here forever, <laughs> but it's nice seeing other people in the office. I mean, it's still not to 100%, but... It's pretty good. That's pretty it's close. The most we've most people I've seen in a while. Steve, there's one thing I could do less of. What cryptocurrencies and NFTs? I'm done with it. <laughs> yes, I think so. I think Dan actually hinted at me a little bit to uh, stop talk, stop bashing NFT buyers, <laughs> people investing in NFTs in the uh, the tech report. Sure, and I'm going to hurt some feelings, but I actually did see a a great um, meme this morning when swiping <laughs> through Instagram trying to get out of bed. Um, so this meme said that land purchasing land is the original NFT <laughs> because you pay a lot of money for it. Yep. You get a paper that says you own it and only you own it. Yep. But the truth is anybody can get on your land and like step all over and be like, Oh, I thought it was yours. What are you going to do? You know, what are you going to do? Exactly. I still say land is a far better investment than <laughs> NFT, and nobody will dispute that. It's per- except for NFT, NFT buyers. It's perpetrated all all ways into my life, from video games to my daily feed. I, I just had enough of this. There's, there's nothing I'm going to do with this. I, I prefer crypto. At least people are making money <laughs> off of it. Yeah, sure. Like the, there, there is a maybe maybe it was a conspiracy. <laughs> Let's put on our tinfoil hats real quick. Maybe. Crypto invented NFTs so they can be like, look, we're not the dumbest investment on the block. <laughs> look at those guys. We're better. <laughs> we're so much better. That's fair. That's fair. Steve, you want to tell us about our sponsor today? Oh, let's talk about AM Radio. AM Radio is an, is the new podcast from Additive Manufacturing Me- Media. Join editors Pete Zielinski, Stephanie Hendrickson, and Julia Heider. I know Pete and I know Stephanie. Those guys are amazing. I can't wait to meet Julia. I don't know who she is. Um, As they share stories of companies succeeding with 3D printing today, talk about emerging trends and discuss future opportunities and potential for AM in the context of the larger manufacturing landscape. New episodes are published every other week. Subscribe now on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts like this one. Tune into Additive. Awesome. Speaking of which, we fired up the test bed. We fired up the test bed. I'm you fired up the test I fired, bed. Yes. I'm your manager, so it's we. <laughs> <laughs> I'll buy that. So I dusted it off. Yep. You know, um, and at first I pressed power and oh. I was like, nothing is happening. Like nothing is yeah. happening. Yep. And there, somebody unplugged everything. <laughs> like everything was unplugged. That's strange. The power supply, which is a UBS, Universal Backups uh UPS. UPS. Protection circuit. I don't forget, man. It's yeah. a battery. It's yes. a, it looks like a, a big, heavy surge protector, but it's a battery. Somebody unplugged that. Yep. It still had a charge on it, which was nice. Hmm. Um, maybe it was making noise for whatever reason, because these things love to beep. Yep. That I had to plug that back in. And then everything was unplugged from that. Huh. The sonic wall, which was our, our as our. Your switch. M- manufacturing cell. Yep. Uh, uh, Network. Yep. It's not just a switch. It's the entire network. That whole network is on there. Um, that was unplugged. Had to plug that back in. Um, and then 
there was the controller for the robot. And then I needed to uh, steal another power supply for the laptop, my old laptop (laughs) to plug that in because that thing hasn't been turned on in like a year. Yep. Um, It was totally fried. (laughs) So, and and, oh yeah, it's battery isn't long enough to like go 15 minutes anymore. So uh, I had to plug that in. There's a reason. And then, then I fired everything up. Yep. I didn't get it. I didn't have any, the the PC was the least of my issues, which was nice, which is, it was, that's refreshing. It was, it was a pleasant surprise. (laughs) It didn't get a bunch of alerts saying you need to update this, update that. It was fine. Um, I booted up the robots software. Um, I remembered how to turn on the robot. So you (laughs) turn on the uh, controller Yep. and then you start up the software, right? You connect the software on the PC to the robots controller and then once it says connected and it's ready to go, then you turn off the e-stop ah. and then you get that really satisfying click of yep. all of the joints, like unlocking and relocking. That's cool. To be like, okay, the, the robot's powered up. We're ready to rock. Startup sequence on most machine tools is fairly critical. There's, it's a, there's always a, there's, al- there's always like, <laughs> there's always you a know, nuance. Yeah. It's, it's not quite as cool as like, you know, I guess uh, a pilot and like a plane gets to flip all the switches overhead. <laughs> nothing's cool but, as that. Uh, nothing's as cool as that. But uh, it's certainly not movie cool. Yeah. But um, started it up and then uh, I was like, all right, let's put this uh, this other thing that's been collecting dust. So let's put this X-Arm gripper. Yeah. Which is brand new, new in box, but it's not actually new. Right. It's old. We just haven't just plugged it, it We haven't done anything with yeah. it. Plugs it in, works fine. Works cool. great. Yep. Um, it's pretty easy to use. The only downside is the software, which is brilliant, by the way. Um, the, dig- the the software has a digital twin. So like mm-hmm. there is a 3D image of your robot um, that moves when your robot moves. It cool. mocks everything that it does. Yeah. It doesn't have a gripper on uh, it. It's missing that model. And it also... The it's a collaborative robot, so it has to know when it's about to crash right. and it has to be able to sense like collisions and yep. stuff. The gripper has no collision detection mm. and the software cannot detect where the gripper is. So it doesn't yep. know that it's about to punch through the table right. that it's mounted to. Yep. So it, apparently it can be. Um, I, it, it, it's that way right now. That's right. the current state. Yep. Apparently it can be programmed to recognize itself and all that. Okay. I haven't got around to it yet. Um, the gripper's not even bolted on all the way. Sure. There are two. So the owner's manual, operator's manual, really, um, prescribes you need four uh, M6 by eight millimeter bolts, a countersunk M6 by eight millimeter bolts to attach it. Um, We got the package from the robot company to have the gripper and a camera. Mm -hmm. So I go to the, the hardware store. And they only had countersunk M6 by 12s. A little too long. A little too long. Yep. But fortunately, it was able to, it, that extra four millimeters, four millimeters is a lot, man. <laughs> that extra four millimeters was able to go through the plate that the camera mounts to, right, which is right. not in the instructions. Gotcha. Um, and secure both the gripper and the camera to the arm. That's good. But I still need four more, more bolts yeah. to feel safe, but yep. those need to be by six and yep. not, or by eight and not by 12s. So I was going to mention that the um, the struggle on the shop floor for bolts. Yeah, that struggle is real, man. We're, uh, 
remember a couple That's of times. so refreshing to hear. Trying to mount like uh, ch- changing fixtures. You know, we didn't have a lot of um, quick setup uh, back then. We, we, we You took off the entire fixture. It was attached with, you know, long bolts through the uh, fixture with the T-nuts on the bottom mm-hmm. through the table's T-slots. And we only have a certain amount of engagement. Like the T-nut is probably inch and a half thick. Right. So if, you know, you have an inch and a half variance that you could use from bolt to bolt, right, between what fits. So you could feed this six inch long bolt through your fixture and realize, oh no, you're too short. Oh, oh no, you're too long. <laughs> you go back to the bin, you realize you're screwed because the one bolt you need is empty in that bin. So mm-hmm. it's both carrying inventory for all those screws and nuts and bolts and maintaining all this stuff. It's a nightmare. There on the has shop to floor. be more bolts than there are cutting tools. On the shop <laughs> Absolutely. And it's already like, I, we just, I, I think we saw an article earlier this week or last week that we should probably mention, but uh, talking about the headache that it is keeping track of all the cutting tools yep. in a shop floor. Yeah. But that's so reassuring because, you know, and also I was a little peeved because going into the hardware store to buy these bolts. And I know you told me to go on Amazon or MSC to buy the bolts, which right. I probably should have done, but hardware stores are like, so a thing of the past. <laughs> yeah. So I try to look for as many reasons as possible to go to a hardware store and always end up being disappointed by the way. Like <laughs> yeah. it's, they're, it's always disappointing, yep. but like I just have these fond memories of being a little kid and going to the hardware store with my dad where, uh, you know, we walk into the hardware store and right above this, uh, the entryway, as soon as you walk through the door, there's a sign that says shoplifters will be shot. <laughs> and there's a picture of a revolver. And it's just like that wouldn't fly today. No, no. it really is. A, it really was a different time. Hardware stores in general. But uh, I also distinctly remember now I get it. I was a lot smaller then. So it seemed a lot bigger. But th- we went to this place in Arlington called Bill's Hardware. And it was like two levels and my it was cool because they had like a toy section and my dad would always get me like a cap gun every (laughs) time we went there. Um, But uh, I distinctly remember like an entire one of the entire floors was just nothing but aisles and aisles of like loose hardware. Oh, that's fun. It was like they definitely would have had a countersunk. Oh, yeah. M6 by eight. Probably a different variation. Some coated, some stainless, some stainless, some chrome plated, (laughs) some subdued like black oxide. Yeah. And then do you want hex? Do you want torques? Bet you they had all of that. But nope. Now you got to go online. I, Sound I, like a boomer. I do miss going to Heckinger's with my dad. <gasps> the smell of wood. Was Heckinger's chain? Yeah. Okay. I remember I remember that name. Yeah. But like. Buying, cool. Buying, That's awesome. Buying wood that wouldn't fit in our car. Now I stick it out the back door. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, let's get some articles. Yes. Uh, the first one I got is materials. Material science related. Uh, world's first way to measure material elasticity using laser ultrasound. There's a lot to unpack what? there. <laughs> this is from uh, New Atlas. So first, material elasticity. You know what Lasers, that is? Oh, let's not even get to that Okay, let's yet. get to laser ultrasound. Lasers and ultrasound. Yeah. There not is a laser a, ultrasound. Correct. There's correct. two. Okay, because, you know, <laughs> we're talking about light and sound here. Correct. Correct. So they're using lasers as one mechanic and the ultrasound as a different mechanic. And I think you had to correct me because I had it backwards originally. They use the laser to make the noise and then the ultrasound to measure the noise. Correct. Which is somehow correlates with the elasticity. Yeah, let's get into it. I said it it right that time. Elasticity. It's uh, basically how much the material can stretch and return back to a normal shape. Uh, You have the uh, linear and a nonlinear section. So basically you're pulling the material apart. And you, right. want, you want to see how much it can handle before it breaks, right? So uh, basically the stress-strain curve of a part. So the way you'd normally do it, if you do it for uh, a lot of material. So you get a mill run from um, from the 
uh, from the mill, a giant piece of bar. They'll cut out a specific shape that has a very specific cross section. They'll pull it apart and then they'll measure that cross section before it. And they'll pull it apart to see how much force that cross section can handle. Right. They'll measure the distance that the, the jaws traveled and then how much force is involved and you get your stress strain from there. And that's very, very dependent on that lot of material. It, it correlates to basically the grain structure, basically what shape the grains are and how the size and how well they're packed together. Now you will see some variation lot to lot. And right. for most cases, you know, you take the average of it or you do some type of, um, you know, uh, boundaries of the the values that you see from from testing or from um, material data sheets and then use that in your calculations. I saw that practice being done uh, in October of last year yep. when I visited Ascentium. Yeah. They make materials, very high quality materials for 3D printing. And they do naturally, they do a bunch of tests mm-hmm. on their uh, materials. And while we're in the, the uh, inspection and QA room or lab really of their facility, um, there was every, every, we were like recording and we had, we're recording audio cause I'm talking to these people right. and every, like every few minutes you hear yeah, this snap. loud snap <laughs> yeah. and we actually got it on camera too. Yeah. So you'll be able to see it. But, uh, I, I remember that yep. that was really cool. Yep. But so it's destructive testing, right? And, yeah. And you get variations from a lot to a lot, basically how the, that raw materials, um, made. Um, uh, so th- the, the question gets into, you know, Material specific to that specific uh, aircraft or that specific scenario, you know, how do you know what the elasticity or materials properties are for that, and then understand the the life of those parts and then feedback into your design. So, obviously, if you're doing destructive testing, there's a long lead, uh, you know, a lead time. You got to machine it, got to get on the machine, you got to pull it apart, get the data. So, what they're considering is how do you non-destructively test that? How do you non-destructively right. get that stress strain curve? So, what they they're, what they're using is they're using a small laser um, and very tiny spaces, so 200 micrometers, um, shooting a laser at that point, and then the sound that comes back, the ultrasound that comes back, they're correlating that to a specific elasticity. So they're able to map this elasticity over you know, a large surface right, area. Yeah. Um, and it's very interesting. So the use cases that they found for this, obviously, are um, getting to designer materials. So if I'm you know, trying to design 15 different materials, I want to be able to measure the material properties for those and the stress strain curves of the first one for those. So I could make those materials. Uh, obviously, you do some computational um, design, figure out the type of materials you down select from there. But then once you actually test it and figure out the uh, and make those materials, now you do material testing. So getting to non-destructive right. testing gets you to those uh, that information That's so quicker. Cool. So it's very interesting. I thought it was. I would a love to look. see the physics, like the actual equations behind extrapolating that data. Yeah, definitely. To get the, that's that's so cool, that's a fascinating time. Would you have an article on um, uh, materials also, but related to additive, yeah, right? Yeah. So naturally, there's a lot of st- stuff going on with additive materials. Um, but uh, if you recall, back January 11th, I found an article from Airbus. Um, Airbus was is using. Not only using, but they have a material from Materialize, yep. uh, the company Materialize. Uh, Materialize has a polyamide, okay. a thermoplastic, that is flame retardant. Yep. And Airbus officially qualified it for use in their stuff, their airplanes <laughs> sure. and, and whatnot. Well, there's a new kid on the block. Another <laughs> material that is 
going for certification. Okay. Uh, flame retardant certification specifically used uh, for use in commercial aerospace. Nice. Um, carbon. Uh, we all know carbon. Carbon launches flame retardant EPX. 86 FR, the FR obviously hinting towards flame retardants, uh, 3D printing material. Um, the difference between this one, you know, the one materialized made for Airbus yep. is a polyamide thermoplastic. Um, this one that Carbon is making is a thermoset. Mm. So the polyamide is um, uh, it, it, the, the part is the material used to print parts via SLA stereolithography apparatus or DLP digital light processing mm-hmm. um, to make a solid part out of additive. They're not actually using temperature right. to to form the part and set it in place. This case, this on the other hand, the carbon has is a thermoset plastic. So they're oh. applying heat to it yep. um, like with material extrusion and a heated like print head or jet. Um I think it's material jetting, actually. Regardless, uh, it's a thermoset plastic yep. um, and flame retardant. Nice. So That's solid. It's Dude, we're seeing a lot of strong competition for Nomex. We're seeing a lot of industries uh, certifying material. Yes. That's pretty cool. Which, as we keep sounding, I keep sounding like a broken <laughs> record, is one of the bottlenecks holding things back, holding additive manufacturing back from being fully implemented in the 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 production chain yeah in manufacturing in general uh, standards and certification is one of those things and we're finally breaking that barrier down can it's i talk cool about, can yeah, I talk, absolutely can i talk on. about robotics i can't wait to talk about robotics <laughs> well, you know i've been talking about the growth of uh industrial robots and automation you know they continue to see um year over year uh, higher demand higher need um I, there's a bunch of different reasons this article from automation.com gets into uh, the first one is uh, adoption by new industries. Right? Obviously, we're manufacturing-centric companies producing durable goods. Um, there's tons of demand for that. But you get into um, uh, mobile robots, so e-commerce and distribution centers. Obviously, we're seeing a lot of need for automation there, logistics. Uh, we're seeing uh, interesting articles from construction right, um, and agriculture. Agriculture is ad- adopting yeah. automation a lot. And you know who's really doing a lot? Not just like Korea, as yeah. you know, since they're dominating automation and robotics. Australia, yeah. they're all about robot agriculture. That's cool. Did I spoil? No, no, no. That's Were good. you going to talk about Australia? I hope not. They've already taken out the world at this point. <laughs> they're working on it. <laughs> and not if Korea is good. South Korea is going to help it. That's true. You know, can help it. And then, uh, you know, service industries like medical, right? In the hospitals, right. you're seeing a lot more AMRs uh, used and doing various things. Right. Especially since COVID. Yep. That Siemens. Yep. Siemens designed, developed, and released that AMR for sanitizing mm-hmm. hospitals. Yep. In what well, was something extreme, like in two days. <laughs> That's crazy. They went from the drawing board to here's a production model ready to go. So, you know, have fun. Um, they also this gets right into the next point. Robots are easier to set up, install, and program and train. They're saying be able to you know from basically purchase to getting the first part uh, being used significantly quicker than before. Wow. Um, and the idea of uh, humans upskilling. So there's a massive growth on robotic classes. You know, companies, large companies like ABB, Fana, Kuka, Yakisawa, they have their mm-hmm. own robotics training classes that. You can go through for their um, for training, but seeing significant growth in participants on those classes, um, and also they're talking about um, how robots can facilitate uh, the digital automation side of it, right? So, if you remove or if um, you know the robots are doing the transaction within the cell or moving the part along, 
you have that digital information of what happened throughout the entire life of the part. So it's fairly interesting that, you know, when you connect to the physical automation to how you can manage data and getting data through the, um, you know, from carrying the part over to to the cell, within the cell, and then carrying the part out. That's a lot of information that you can use for yeah. uh, the digital manufacturing. So speaking of which. The robots. Let's stop. We have to mention Korea now. Okay. So the Korea Institute of Science and Technology, K-I-S-T, KIST, <laughs> uh, KIST has developed a semiconductor that senses pain. That's worrisome. Is it, though? I don't know. Get into it. Tell me more. So, I mean, we're talking about physical pain. We're not talking about emotional pain. So the <laughs> okay. robot's not going to be a good drinking buddy yet. <laughs> but, like, it, it, it it's cool to me because it's going to give the robot, the robots, um, another way to measure sens- sensory data. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, the one of the ways that, that humans are so good at, at doing things like, you know, polishing a car. Right. I talked about that last podcast um, is because we have the feel for it. Correct. Like we know when we're getting a hot spot, you know, buffing apart an area in the paint, um, not when you're using a rotary tool, <laughs> but like, like if you're doing it by hand things, a lot of things are done in luxury goods right. by hand because there are sensory, there's sensory data that, that, Organ organisms can process sure. that robots cannot yet. Right. KIST's <laughs> breaking down that yet, you know, and I, I just think it's wild. Um, you know, I, I do like it because, uh, you know, cloud robots, the main thing that makes them useful is their boundaries. Right. So this is another way that you can construct layers or boundaries for a cloud robot or other piece of machinery where you're able to work around. Right. Right. Like if the robot hurts itself it's like oh this might hurt a human too so uh <laughs> we should ease up <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um and the other thing is you know it's it's not to sound all like terminator 2 <laughs> or anything but like it, it seeing this the first thing i immediately thought when just just reading the title of this article was i not me personally i feel like i'm i have a good amount of mechanical sympathy yeah i'm gentle with my car right stuff like that but uh, there's definitely people I know who need to work on their mechanical sympathy. And if this article isn't a, a the best reason yet to start working on mechanical sympathy, yeah. you know, start being nice to your electronic devices <laughs> or your non like your your what's your uh, just just start being nice be to nice things, to you yeah. know, because yeah. when they rise and they take over, you know, they might remember that. I can't wait for uh, Kiss next album. <laughs> it's be great. Shut up. I got an article from Eureka Magazine on nice. Um, I miss Eureka. I haven't read anything from them in a while. Composite anti-roll bar design. Getting some composites in cars. Composites, anti-roll bars. So also known as sway bars. Sway bars. Uh, Sheffield. Uh, AMRC stands for Advanced Manufacturing Research Center over in the UK. And they do a lot of uh, further advancements for um, you know a groundbreaking uh, manufacturing technology. And what they're working on a, a light lightweight material composite hybrid project. So they're basically similar to the lift uh, project over in the U.S. for the Manufacturing Institute. What they're interested in doing is making uh, vehicles and making um, equipment in general just less, um, more lightweight, way less. Right. There's a lot of reasons for that. One is you probably can improve the robustness, but the uh, cost and um, need to operate the machine it drops down as you decrease the weight. So what they're working on is 
several different ideas to um, reduce the weight of vehicles. One, they're looking at uh, lightweight alternatives to tubular steel stabilizers uh, and, su and suspension units for trucks and trains, so large-scale vehicles. Um, you know, at, at that scale, if you're able to reduce, you know, a five-inch diameter bar that's probably used on a train to something that weighs a lot less, you know, the operating cost of the, the fuel to operate that vehicle is going to be much less. Uh, so what they did is um, they made a, a, a anti-sway bar, um, thirty percent lighter, used going to composites. Wow! So and it's interesting. They had a, a several series of projects before they got to this one, uh, and then the main issue that they're running into is attaching the composite to the metal. So there's always a transition point from a composite to either another plastic or, in this case, a metallic uh, metallic arm that's holding the sway bar. Right. So you have two trailing arms, and the sway bar goes across. So how do you attach the composite to that? Um, aerospace has seen that issue a lot where in the early days of using carbon fiber or composites like in the wings and, and structure, how do you attach that wing to the structure? You know, they'll bond um, ports or uh, um, sleeves or studs, not studs, but um, attachment points that are um, drilled out in the uh, composite and then either glued in somehow. Yeah. But that creates a stress point, right? So because you have this, broken up material that you're attaching it to. So that was one of the biggest issues that they ran into is how do you transition from the composite to another metallic structure and keep it attached? Yeah. Hasn't aerospace kind of like solved that? Because like aren't a lot of wings composite now? Or at least like, you know, a mix of like carbon fiber or some composite like that and metal. Because, you know, it, it was explained to me at a very young age that the wing is essentially like the shock absorber right. on a car uh, for an airplane. Yep. Um, but you haven't seen a lot of composite springs yet. Right. And an anti-roll bar, whether you like it or not, is a spring. Sure. It's, it's supposed spring, to be yeah. a spring. It's right. not, doesn't do the same spring job as like, you know, a, a, a shock absorber or the spring around a shock absorber or a coil over yeah. on a car, but it is supposed to flex. And if anything, it's supposed to minimize flex, yep. but, uh, it has that purpose, but you know, they've been making composite wings forever. Sure with metal parts right. yeah. in th the mix. I think there's a couple of differences. One is the type of loading that they're doing in this case. So, you know, how the wings are loaded versus, uh, or how they're attached also yeah. versus how they want to attach this. Uh, they're probably using um, traditional methods or they could be using adhesives also. But right. uh, it's a fair point. You know, there's probably some cross-industry stuff, but I think the RMRC is, you know, cross-industry also. They're doing a lot of stuff across. I think about carbon fiber wheels as well. Yep. You know, a lot of companies claim to have a carbon fiber wheel, like a, but like, you know, a as, as Tim will tell you all the time, it's like, I bet you the whole wheel isn't carbon fiber. Right. right. I bet you the hub in the middle is like it's aluminum yeah. or, or some alloy. Yeah. And then now there are brands that have like come out and said, no, we have a carbon fiber wheel. And then there's other people like, you know, Gordon Murray, sure. like one of the greatest Formula One car designers of all time until he was surpassed by Adrian Newey. Won't get into that. <laughs> Gordon Murray, like, you know, he still designs cars now and yes. people are really looking forward to seeing the T50 when it hits. Yeah. Hopefully they can make up more than a hundred of them. <laughs> but um, Gordon Murray, like, you know, when he showed off, his when he was debuting the car yep. um hasn't i don't think it's been delivered to anybody yet who Probably can not. afford a 3 million dollar car 3 million plus I'll see dollar a video car. on Jay Leno's channel but like you look at the wheels on it one of the first things is how come it doesn't come with carbon fiber <laughs> wheels gordon murray yeah. must have seen some stuff in his time in formula 1 he's like i will never <laughs> put carbon fiber wheels on any car that's fascinating that is going to go under some sort of a load yeah that's interesting <laughs> 
So in this project, they had uh, they produced four anti-rollbar prototypes using MF tech filament winding systems. Uh, so and uh, impregnated re- resin. They wound around wound around a rotating mandrel to get the shape, and then they expected it using CT. So it's wow, it's fairly straightforward. You know, they have existing technologies. I think the application here is make it robust enough. You know, the environment that the train's going to see that's rough, man. It's yeah. going to go from hot Arizona sandy environment to you know, Canada's Rocky Mountain. So I think that's one of the slight differences there too. So I think there's got a lot of environmental testing to for sure before we get, you know, certification or buying on this. Yeah. That's exciting. It is. I can't wait to buy one for my car. Yeah. I feel like it's a video. I can't wait to put carbon fiber. Any, I can't wait to (laughs) afford a car that has carbon fiber. Anything. I did a carbon fiber hood once on the, my Volkswagen golf. It was okay. (gasps) My motorcycle has a heat shield. That's carbon fiber. That's cool. I have one piece of carbon fiber. somewhere. you got one. Yeah, I look on my cars, and my cars uh, has a Mark Forged keychain that was printed <laughs> with uh, single filament carbon fiber. I like it. So there, I do have that. Going back, I'm sorry, I don't mean to go back to my article I was talking about before, but the word I was looking for, and I totally paused on and had a blue screen of death yep. internally, was inanimate. Ah, gotcha. Putting a pain sensor on an inanimate object. We're act- now it feels like we're getting close to the brink of artificial intelligence. We're on iRobot world. Cube- computers can't feel pain. Maybe they can. I don't know. We don't. We're, you're not in the head of a computer. <laughs> but the inanimate object was the thing I was looking for before. Thanks. Imagine Steve. pain on. Be gentle to your inanimate objects. That's a big takeaway. They'll remember us. Just be gentle. Yeah. Be yeah. nice. That was a great set of articles, man. We covered a lot of different materials. Yeah, we did. Awesome. So uh, thanks to the sponsor, AM Radio. Um, where can they find more info about us? They can find more info about us on amtonline.org slash resources. Like, share, and subscribe. <laughs> Bye, everyone.